0: So we're in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, just to start off. So Hebrews was a letter that was written to a group of Christians who were facing real times of difficulty. Uh, We don't exactly know who wrote uh, the book Hebrews. We don't exactly know who the recipients were, but it was probably written in the late 60s of the first century to these Christians who were facing real trouble, real persecution and difficulty. Uh, So we're actually going to pick it up. From the last verse of chapter 10, so if you cast your eye up a little bit from verse 39, you can see that there's talk of struggle. Look at verse 32. There's struggle and sufferings. We're going to read that in a moment. There's public persecution. There's properties being destroyed that mentions the need for endurance. And then the writer writes the following. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, confession time. You know, Scott said this series, is there's going to be, going to be moments and space, hopefully, uh, as we ponder these messages, respond to them here, and, and reflect on them through the week. Definitely going to be moments of repentance, confession, just being honest together as a church before God. And uh, I, I want to say, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that I find it difficult sometimes not to shrink back too many negatives in there. It is easy, isn't it, to shrink back from this path of faith that we are on. It is easy in the the face of a a messed up world, in the context of a a messed up heart that I have, certainly for me there is a battle week by week, month by month, uh, where I would want to shrink back from what God is calling me forward into. Now, uh, let's go back a few verses just to look at this a little bit more. Because I, 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 I don't know about you, but I want to find help, given that that's true, that I want to shrink back from what God has for me. I need help, right? So let's look from verse 32. Recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, so uh, that, he's speaking there about how Jesus has, has opened up a new way for us to enter into God's presence. He's been speaking about the confidence that we can have to enter into God's presence. And that's what he means by enlightened here. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So again, here, just that's a remarkable little phrase, right? It's just a thing lifting our eyes to, to understand that life as the people of God... Is, is no small thing. It's, it, it's a strange thing. Joyfully accepting the plundering of your property because we know whose we are in Jesus Christ. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So there's this reminder that the writer is giving us of the confidence that we should have. The confidence that we should have in Jesus, which brings endurance. And all of this is happening, verse 37, in the context of, four times it's underlined, this reality of the the coming one uh, will come, so yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. So this is all in the context that Jesus is coming back. That's what ultimately gives us our confidence. We are his. He's coming back. We are going to spend eternity with him, home with him. So in that context, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's keep reading now. Now, what is this faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So what is faith? If we're not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith, what what does that mean? Faith is assurance and conviction, as it says in verse one, about things that we hope for, that we don't see yet. And in verse three, we'll read it in a second. We see that, Faith is something that brings about true understanding, recalibrates us, brings us back to what is true. Let's read verse 3. So uh, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So faith is that which enables us to understand how God truly works. It's an inner assurance and conviction that we're not alone. That we've not been wasting our breath this morning as we've been saying. There is a God, that this God is not a God who stays silent, that he is a God who speaks. And that as he speaks, by his word, he works miracles, bringing life, bringing things to life just by his power and authority. So, as the church of Jesus Christ here in Hillview Community Church, we are to be these people of faith who don't shrink back, but who are assured of God's work, stepping in to his purposes and his plans. And we are to be a people who, in a sense, see that which is unseen. This is what faith is. We're to to live with confidence in God, even when things seem difficult and it goes on in Hebrews 11 to give countless examples of Old Testament saints who exemplified that faith until we get to the start of chapter 12 where it says verse 1 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter or completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, dear friends, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Why are we to consider this God? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Feeling weary, it's morning, Feeling unsure of where you're at in your life with God, where, where we're at in our life with God. Consider him who endured such hostility and is seated at the right hand of God so that we might not grow weary. This, friends, is the path of faith, not shrinking back even in hard times, Confident of Jesus, soon return. It's the way the New Testament always speaks of Jesus. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. Trusting in the God who speaks even the universe into existence. Having faith that he will continue that creating work. Bringing about in us his purposes, even through the ministries that we are part of in this church. And in all of that, we're running forward with endurance, the race that he has put before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the one who gives us faith, the author of our faith, and the one who supplies all the faith we need. He's the perfecter of that faith. That's who we're to be, among other things. So, partly in light of that, when Hillview Community Church was established, we framed... Our, our vision statement as eight statements of we see so jacob i wonder if you could just let them they're, they're just going to scroll in a wee video behind me just now if you are interested you can find these at hillview.cc vision and uh, as we say we see a church that uh, the point of that is to to make very clear we're not there yet these Statements are, by definition, aspirational. The things that we're hoping for and praying for by the grace of God. They're not things that we have achieved. They're not things that we have sorted out. We're praying that as God leads in his time, some of these things might come to pass for his glory. So we're taking six weeks to to look at these and we're squeezing eight of these vision statements into six weeks and you know how much that pains me with my borderline OCD, but we're gonna we're gonna make it work. And uh, as Scott and, and Dan and I have talked about these things, we've been really conscious of this reality that these are things that we might be hoping and praying for in Jesus. That that we've we've not got these right in many many ways, and that we do need to make space to confess that before God, and maybe we need to make space perhaps tonight at the prayer meeting, for example, to to repent before God for some of the ways that we have not matched up to what he's been calling us to. And we're praying that God would lead us on in these things. So Dan, Dan's over at Quintour uh, this morning, and a couple of weeks ago he shared how he thought he would sort of open his message up. And I, I like the way he put it, so I'm just going to quote from what he he shared in a WhatsApp. He said, This series is an opportunity to listen, reflect, and become. We will listen to where God has called us to go together. These vision statements are a recognition of what God has said in the Bible and how he is leading us as a church. The point of this little series is for us to test whether that's true. Secondly, we will reflect on where we are at. How are we getting on with these things? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to celebrate? Thirdly, we will become who we are. We are the body of Christ and as a body we seek to grow and mature. How will we, empowered by the Holy Spirit, go forward together? So, this morning, we're looking at the first two of these statements. Jacob, I wonder if you could uh, just pop that next slide up. I, I just want to encourage you, as you read this, don't get too caught up on the wording. These were, no, sorry, next one, pal, thank you very much. These were uh, written almost 12 years ago now, and to be honest, I think probably one or two of them at least need a wee bit of a revision. So don't get too caught up on the particular wording. But here's what they say. We'll just, I'll just read them to you. We see a church that is biblical. We will teach the Bible with integrity, passion, and humility. It will be our guide in everything we do. We will love the Scriptures, finding different ways for all different ages to understand the glorious depths of God's Word. We see a church, secondly, of authentic worshipers. We will declare the greatness of God. We've been doing that, right? We will not be lukewarm in our praise. We will sing passionately, pray earnestly, listen attentively, and surrender ourselves regularly. Worship will be a 24-7 reality. We will look forward to Sunday gatherings with great joy and expectation. Was that you this morning at 9 (laughs) a.m.? I hope so for at least some of us. And as that is the case, it spreads among us as God's people. So for the time that we have remaining, I'm largely going to focus on the second of these uh, for a couple of reasons, partly because not that long ago when we got to John 8 and the story of the woman who was almost stoned, We took a little pause there and stepped back and and reflected on what the scriptures are and the power that they have and the authority that they have in our lives. So that's one reason why we're mainly going to focus on the the worship one. But also, I very much hope that even how we come about this sermon time, uh, week by week, and I hope also today, um, that we will show, as we do that, and the way that we do that, we will show our complete dependence upon God's word. I say it regularly and it's so true. I and myself have zero of any interest or authority or lasting value to share with you but God's word is awesome and God's word has lots to say to us and I pray that's uh, well I believe that's true today as well so having said that that we're mainly going to focus on worship I do just want to start there's three things that we're going to just mention about worship I do just want to start though by flagging that that when we think about worship God's word is central God's word is central to how you think about worship you know Sometimes we speak about uh, church communities in very crude ways. And some people will say, oh, well, what, what kind of church are you? Are you a church that's into worship? Or are you a church that's into preaching? <laughs> we should not be comfortable with these sorts of uh, false dichotomies. We want to be into worship and as that is our heart. The, the, we we better believe that the word of God has to be in, at the very center of what it means for us to be worshippers. So let's look at this just now. now and now and again, and another, another caveat. In that vision statement about worship, it said worship will be a 24-7 reality. And, and that's true, but that's not going to be the main focus of what I'm looking at today. Uh, It is true, though, our spiritual worship, Romans 12, verse 1, is is not just about singing songs. It is about us offering our bodies. That is to say, all that we do, the way that we use our bodies as well, as, as a living sacrifice to God. This is our spiritual worship. So I just want to affirm that briefly this morning. Worship is not just singing. Not just prayer, not just what we do when we gather here on a Sunday, but it is our heart attitude before God through the week that we would seek to honor Him in everything. I've mentioned this uh, a long time ago, but I, I was, uh, someone shared with me that um, on the entrance of the chapel to the Queen's Foundation, which is a theological college in Birmingham, there's a notice which says, you are now entering a place of worship. And you may say, well, that's not that surprising on an entrance, you know, at a, at a chapel. But the, uh, the, 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 the fascinating thing about this notice is it's on the inside facing out so that people read it as they leave the chapel. And I, I like the idea of that. Maybe one day we can get a sign up over the over the outside door there, just as as people, you are now entering a place of worship. God, help me remember that the songs we've been singing, the word that we've been surrendering ourselves before, Your presence which we've enjoyed. Help us remember that we carry that into this world, and help me honour You in how I live and and bring my worship to You from Sunday twelve thirty or whatever through to next week. You know, I think that's a lovely thing to, to think of. But that's not mainly what we're going to look at today, because within that life of 24-7 worship, there are special times when we come together and specifically set aside time to focus our hearts and to wonder at who God is. And as that happened, I just want to highlight that God's word was always central. So three examples of that. And if you could flip right back in your Bible, big books, second chronicles. And uh, we're going to just read some incredible words from Second Chronicles, or they are going to come up on the screen. Don't be in any way embarrassed to use your uh, table of contents at the front. I use the table of contents from time to time, just letting you know. So uh, make me feel better about my uh, my failings <laughs> by you using it as well. But here we are in Second Chronicles chapter 5. What's happening here is Solomon is finishing the preparation for God's Temple. This is the, the first great focal point, if you like, for the presence and the power of God. And as soon as the temple is finished, the question is, what's the first thing that Solomon wants to do? Well, let's read Second Chronicles 5, verse 2. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord, out of the city of David, which is Zion. Now jump down to verse 10 to see what this Ark of this Covenant was all about. There was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So this is the law of God. This is God's word to his people. And the first thing that Solomon does is make sure that this is at the very center of the temple. Let's, let's jump back, please, to verse six. So it says, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. So this is worship. This is Old Testament worship. It's the powerful moment, a weighty moment. The, this, this, This reality of God's word coming among them is saturated, literally, with the blood of countless sacrifices in worship. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. Now, we then we can see, then if you cast your eye down, we're, we're actually going to look at these verses later on. But from verses 12 following, that after all this has happened, there's more worship, not sacrifices on this occasion, but there's trumpets and there's cymbals and there's singing and there's loud words of praise to God for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The point is that at this very crucial moment in Israel's history, God's word, Solomon knew that he was to make sure that God's word was at the very center. Now, we see the exact same thing at the dedication of the second temple. So, if you could flip forward a little bit to Ezra Nehemiah, uh, just uh, over Ezra's the next book, but we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8. So, in Nehemiah chapter 8, the walls, uh, the, the temple and the walls are now completed, restored. And look at how they mark this. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So that's about six hours or so of God's word being read in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And it says, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And then it even says, look down to verse eight, please, where it says, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense... So that the people understood the reading. One of the clearest mentions of, of preaching in the scriptures. Where not only did they read the, the, the God's word for hours on end. But, but Ezra was to give the sense to explain it. To help people understand that. And again we see that all of this is happening in the context of worship. Look down to verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people saying... Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So they're they're entering into these feasts where they celebrate God's goodness, how God has stuck with them and has been gracious to them again and again. And right at the heart of this very special moment of rededicating the second temple, dedicating the second temple to God, there is God's word right there in the mix. Final example, please. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 14. And we've said this before. The New Testament has very little to say on the details of what worship should look like in the New Testament. And and it's a wonderful reason for that. The reason is so that across all cultures, across all times, we can take the principles of the Scriptures, which are clear, and we can apply them into our lives and into our contexts. But 1 Corinthians 14 is one of the very few passages where we're given detail on what worship should look like in the church So let's read from the second part of verse 26. It says there, well, 1 Corinthians 14. um, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So he's saying Paul is saying so clearly, when you gather for worship, there's to be there there are to be a number of things happening in that time. There's to be singing, there's to be teaching, there's to be revelation from God, there is to be speaking in tongues, and if that is done in a public way, then there's to be an interpretation of that tongue. Now, of course, there's lots that we could look into that. We never finished. Uh, our journey through 1st corinthians i was excited about getting to these verses and being able to dig into this together as a church i think we would still like to do that at some point because there's a lot that we could look at here but for now i just want to make clear that in the few things on the specifics of what the new testament says about what is worship god's word is right there at the center a hymn uh, a hymn a lesson a revelation god's word at the centre of our worship, Hillview. May that always be the case for us. In the words of the songs that we sing, in the way that we shape our times of prayer, in the way that we shape our services, it's no, it's no mistake that Scott started the service and we start pretty much every service by reading a scripture passage together sometimes saying that back together because we're not just here as individuals, we're here as the the people of God and the way that we structure our services and how we minister to our kids, may the word of God be at the very center of our worship. Here's the second thing I want to highlight as we think about our gathered worship. It's the importance of rejoicing in song rejoicing in song when the people of israel got together there was great rejoicing in the presence of god and i had a i had a good view up there this morning and was able to see there was much rejoicing going on about the goodness of who god is so i've got a couple of these verses written down here on my notes first chronicles thirteen eight. in this passage the the ark of god is on the move and it says David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might. With song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Let's look at another passage 2nd Chronicles verse 30. In the context here is they're, they're celebrating Passover together and it says the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. You know, sometimes we, we, we can be inclined to s- s- compare gladness with joy. And we can say, oh, well, joy is much more than gladness. Well, that's true. But there is also something good about being glad together when we are rejoicing in who God is. They, they, they kept the feast for seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might. Were you singing with all your might this morning? I hope so. Um, to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the For another seven days. It's like, you know, let's have a seven day retreat away as a church. We're going to worship God with great gladness. And at the end of it, point of order, can we do this again, please? Let's have another seven days. I love it. It says they kept it for another seven days with gladness. (laughs) Awesome. So in these times, there's this joy and celebration, and music and singing play a crucial role. It is incredible how much music comes up in the Bible and I know I'm one of those musical guys. I'm not just saying it because of that. Listen to this. There are 31,173 verses in the Bible and there are over 1,100, no, don't be shaking your head. There are over 1,150 references to music. So on average, one out of every 27 verses of the Bible has a reference to music. That's incredible. There are Almost 1,200 chapters in the Bible, so that means on average one verse in every chapter has a reference to music. It's a massive Scott. You like my stats? <laughs> <laughs> so there's this awesome uh, example of how we are to praise God with gladness through the gift of music. One more example: Second Chronicles chapter five. Uh, we read this before, but I, I said we were going to read these verses from verse 12 onwards. Listen to this. All the Levitical singers, and then some names which I'll not try and get right, their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals. Yes, the drummers say amen. No, seriously, the drummers say amen. Amen. Uh, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. Any trumpeters going to say amen? No trumpeters. Um, and it says it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. When that happened, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. do you long for that? Could not stand because they were so overwhelmed by God's presence. Spiritual leaders of God's people involved in leading the sung praise of God. There's there's effort that's gone in. It says that it was their duty to make themselves heard in unison. That's not easy for musicians to play in unison. They worked at this. There was no small sound. 120 trumpets all these other instruments and when the song was raised it filled the house of god with a cloud there was great rejoicing and worship and song and though less is spoken of it this is carried into the new testament this focus on music rejoicing in song jesus and his disciples are recorded as singing a hymn after supper. Don't you love that? Don't you, wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus sing a hymn like they got to? Uh, and, and, and that's not recorded as being anything particularly unique. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison and they're singing hymns to God. In 1 Corinthians 14, we've just read that it talks of bringing a hymn to the context of worship. In Ephesians 5, after Paul's command, For us to be filled with the Spirit of God himself, the first remark he makes is about an effect of that, is that we will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In James, we're encouraged, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And of course, let's not forget about heaven the living creatures and the elders singing a new song, the people of God in Revelation 14 singing a new song. As God's people gathered together, there was much rejoicing, much celebration, and singing, music played a key role there. Dear friends, we want to be a church, do we not? Who joins in with the song that we hear about in the scriptures, the song of God's goodness and God's glory. May we, as it says in this vision statement, may we not be lukewarm in our praise. God, forgive us for when we have been lukewarm in our affections towards him. We want to be a church that sings with passion, that rejoices wholeheartedly. And we need you in this. Each and every single one of you, the people around you need to be rejoicing in song with all their might. And you play a crucial role in how that happens. You can encourage the person next to you. In uh, the start of the month, the Gospel Coalition uh, wrote a a, a website, uh, sorry, an article, and the title was, it's riffing on a quote by Martin Luther, the title was, God doesn't need your singing but your neighbor does. Now, of course, God is pleased to hear our worship. He's pleased for us to be in a place of joy and celebration, but but he doesn't need it. But I do, and you do. You need the people around you to be lifting their song of praise so that we can encourage one another together in this. And that infectious enthusiasm and joy in God spreads among us. So sing loud, worship this great God of ours. Now, the other thing that we see when we highlight the, the, the gathered people of God together in worship, this is the last thing I want to highlight, is solemnity, repentance, and awe. Solemnity. Perhaps the most common descriptor used of the different gatherings of God's people in the Old Testament is that, that they were solemn. A solemn gathering. Other translations use the word sacred or sometimes holy. The sense is that when God's people came together, there was to be a recognition of the incredible weight of that moment. In fact, it's interesting following on from the the previous point, often they would have a seven-day celebration together, and that would be followed by a day of solemn assembly at the end and this was important to how God wanted his people to come before him for example of the seven feasts so people of Israel God had commanded them instituted them to have seven particular special gatherings feasts to bring their worship to him and all but one of them is listed as a solemn rest a solemn assembly a sacred assembly God is saying, when you come in my presence, come with reverence, come with holy fear. I want you to come to me. I want you to rejoice, but do not lose sight of the fact that it's no small thing that I desire this connection with you. Come with humble gratitude. Come with acknowledgement of your need of me. Solemnity, repentance, As we know, God's people, just like us, did not always follow God's plans. Time and again, they went their own way, disregarding what God had called for them to to do and to embrace by way of their, their pattern of life, rejecting God's perfect plan. And so at different points through the history of God's people, there were moments where they had to recognize their sinfulness for god so i would invite you to find ezra if you can just a little bit on from second chronicles and uh, we hear of the return of of god's people to the land of israel and ezra is lamenting the fact that god's people had not followed god's commands and then look at what it says in ezra chapter 9 from verse 15 it says this O lord the god of israel you are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Goes on, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept. Bitterly. do we have space for that in our gatherings in your life of worship this is not an unusual thing to read of in the Old Testament number of times in the book of Judges the people of God come together and they realize again that they've strayed from God's path and it says they, they, they weep bitterly as they realize the way that they have wandered from God. So there's this solemnity, and there's this repentance, and then in the mix of all of that, there is this wonderful sense of awe. Think of, for example, the thunder and the lightning and the smoke on Mount Sinai when Moses received receives the Ten Commandments. It says in Exodus chapter 20 that the people stood far off in fear, trembling. Think of the the pillar of cloud that would rest on the tent of meeting when Moses went to meet with God face to face. It says in Exodus 33 that the, the people would stand and watch and worship as this was going on. Think of the glory of the Lord that appeared to the people in Leviticus chapter 9 as Aaron made his offerings before God in the fire, consuming the offering. It says that when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces before God. Back to Second Chronicles, please. And we'll just read a few verses, Second Chronicles chapter 7 this time. Verses 1 to 3, this is, again, the, the narrative of the dedication of the temple. It's, Solomon has just prayed in chapter 6. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, verse 1 of chapter 7, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house when all the people of israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the lord on the temple they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the lord saying for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever exact same verses as was quoted in Second Chronicles 5, this time there's, there's celebration, there's noise, there's trumpets. This time the people are on their face before God saying, You're good, you're good, your steadfast love endures forever. And, and, and just as we come to a close now, I just want to flag that there, there are so many, in, in, the, in these passages that we've read, but in so many others, you cannot help but fail to notice when you read the Old Testament that the physical posture of the people of God is significant in terms of their engagement before him throughout the old testament as the people worshiped god they were not always static and composed but their bodies responded in different ways. Sometimes people lifting their hands. Sometimes people dancing before God. I and mean, again, I had a privileged point of view. I saw one or two of you getting a bit groovy in the worship time, which was awesome. We love it more of that, please. Be confident in your dancing, and it'll spread like wildfire through the church. Sometimes people fell flat on their faces. Sometimes people would kneel. Sometimes people would bow. There was noise. There was movement. It was no neat and tidy thing. It was not just an intellectual thing. It was not just a heart thing. As they responded to the wonder of who God was, that manifested itself in certain ways. Dear friends, what do you see in the future? What are you praying that would come to pass in the future for Hillview Community Church with regard to how we hold the the importance of Scripture and worship as we understand who we are as God's people. Is His Word at the very centre of our lives and our worship? Are we rejoicing in song? Are we making space for solemnity, repentance and awe? May God forgive us for the ways that we've been lukewarm in our praise and affections and may he lead us on his presence his goodness his mercy at the very center of everything we do i sent a message uh to the elders uh maybe i don't know a week ago or 10 days ago or something like that and um i don't know maybe some of you have been following this there's a christian college in i think it's kentucky called asbury college and um, uh, two, two weeks ago, or just more than two weeks ago, um, something remarkable happened, and it's still kind of unfolding there. Um, and I'll just read a little tweet thread that someone put out about it, and this, this just encouraged me. This person wrote, I believe that much growth in grace happens in normal life and liturgy, and I'm quite we- I'm wary of hype and wary of, I'm very wary of manipulation. But Jesus also says that the Spirit blows where it will, Yesterday morning at Asbury University, started chapel at 10. At 10.45 they gave the benediction as the gospel choir sang once more, but something happened. Students just stayed, praying for one another, for themselves and their world, singing songs of worship, reciting scripture from all over the auditorium. At 3.30 I joined them, at 8pm or so I went back, the morning after I went again, This afternoon I went again, hundreds of students lifting their hearts in confession, praise and intercession. I'm pretty much allergic to emotional manipulation, but this seems so different. There is such a vivid, palpable sense of hope and joy and peace. It was immediately obvious to me why no one wants to leave. The good news is truly so good and so beautiful. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'm just so thankful that God can do that. At any point, he can shake us and just remind us of the wonder of what it is that we get to do as we come here week by week, sing to him and understand more of who he is and respond and ask him to forgive us and ask him to guide us and shape us as we move forward. Are we praying that there would be that sense of revival among us? Are we praying that we would be struck afresh day by day, week by week? By the wonder of who God is, may it be. May it be Him. Let's pray. Lord, we just bow our hearts in Your presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. We worship you. We thank you, God, for the awesome God that you are. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who has made a way for us to come with confidence into your throne room. God, help us keep your word and your praise at the very center of all we want to be and all we are. Our God, awesome is he. He reigns in power and authority in heaven, on earth. Lift him up, lift him up, lift him up. Your praise will be heard. May it be true among us here. I help you. We ask all these things for Jesus' awesome sake. Amen.